You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So I don't think that I have ever started a sermon by telling you the sermon title. I think most of the time I don't really have a title for a sermon. Maybe if I do, it's an afterthought. But today is different. Okay, because I would like to title this sermon on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 11. I, I want to title it, How to Run When the Running is Hard. How to Run When the Running is Hard. And the reason that I want to tell you the title is because I want you to keep in mind that these verses here, everything said in these verses is connected back to verses 1 and 2, which we looked at last week, with this call to run with endurance. And all this is really meant to be practical. The writer of Hebrews in this passage is going to take us deep into the meaning of suffering, verses 5 to 11. But the whole thing is still about our endurance in faith. And to that end, to the end that we endure in faith, the writer wants us to do three things. Number one, get perspective to keep running, verse 3. Number two, get perspective by remembering what Jesus suffered, verse 4. And then three, Get perspective by remembering God's fatherly discipline. Verses 5 to 11. Those are the three points of the sermon. There's a title and there's three points. So let me pray and we'll start. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you that you address us in your holy scriptures through your holy scriptures. And thank you, Father, for your discipline. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, get perspective to keep running, verse three. Now, why am I saying this about perspective? Where do I get this idea of perspective? Well, it all has to do here with verse three. Look at this, look at verse three. Again, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. This is the action that we're called to. This is what we do. Okay, verse 3 says we consider Jesus. And right away, I want you to draw a connection here between verse 3 and verse 2. Two of the same ideas are repeated here. In verse 2, the writer told us that in our running, as we run with endurance, We look to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So note two concepts there in verse 2. There's looking to Jesus and there's his enduring the cross. Those two concepts show up again here in verse 3. Looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes on Jesus It's not just repeated, but it's actually intensified here in verse 3. Verse 3 says to consider him, which is the only time this word is used, this particular word is used. 
in the New Testament. The word means to think very carefully about something. It means to examine something. All right, so we're running. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus, verse 2. Now we're, we're thinking very carefully about Jesus, verse 3. And we're thinking very carefully, in particular, about his endurance. Verse 2, the writer tells us that Jesus endured the cross. In verse 3, he uses that same word, same word, and he tells us that Jesus endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So let's, let's put this together here, okay? Verse 3 is the same way of thinking that we saw in verse 2. It's just that now the writer is actually just focusing in a little bit more. He's, he's basically just zooming in here. We think carefully about Jesus, and in particular, we think carefully about his endurance in the face of hostility. Do you guys all see that in verse 3? Just make, are you guys tracking in verse 3? I want you, if you can, to look at the text with me in verse 3. I want to make sure you see that, okay? Now look at the second part. We, we do that. We do all of that. That considering Jesus, we do it for a purpose. And that purpose, see here in verse 3, is so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. To not grow weary or faint-hearted is actually still working in that running metaphor from verses 1 and 2. Those words there mean exactly what they say in English. Weary means to be weary. It means to be tired, to be worn out. The word faint-hearted means to feel like your heart's going to faint. But, but both of these words, weary and faint-hearted, they both are things that could happen to you if you're doing endurance running. In fact, this is fascinating, one, one commentator on this passage says that in ancient Greek, both of these words were actually used to describe the condition of runners who collapse after fatigue from running. We, we, we have evidence of these words being used to describe runners who drop. And the writer of Hebrews does not want that to happen for these Christians. He, he doesn't want it to happen for us. He doesn't want us to drop. He wants us to keep running. He wants us to endure. He wants us to make it, which is why he says, think carefully about Jesus. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the one who has run before us, Jesus who is our example Think carefully about Jesus and the suffering he endured. That's verse 3. Verse 3. And now the writer is going to elaborate on that in verse 4. But first, I want you to see something here. I want you to see that in general, what's going on here is that the writer is saying, in order to keep running, we have to have perspective. We need to do something with our eyes. We need to see things a certain way. Because perspective really does make a difference. Okay, I remember when I was a kid, there was this picture book I used to love. It was all about a bug. Okay, and I, 
I, I looked online for this book this week, trying to find the title of this book. Apparently, there's like a trillion kids' books about bugs, okay? So I could not find it. If you know about it, tell me. It's a great book. What I loved about this book, this is, okay, I, I, I remember the whole story. Okay? There was a, a, a bug that goes on this long, epic journey. And each page of the book, this picture book, featured different parts of this bug's journey. And this bug is going over stuff and under stuff and through stuff. And there were just like just one challenge after the other. I mean, every page there was a new challenge that he had to overcome. The book was full of adventure and trial and courage. And finally, by the end of this book, the bug made it to his destination. He, he was there safe and sound, and it was amazing. And in the very last page of this picture book, it zoomed out, and it showed this picture of a garden in someone's backyard that was about 30 feet wide. The bug's long and epic journey was from one end of that garden to the other. And that made an impression on me as a kid. I remember it was amazing to see this. Because I remember thinking, man, that bug didn't go very far. It's 30 feet. He didn't go very far. But then also thinking, that is pretty far if you're a bug. 30 feet. It's long. He almost didn't make it. The objective reality is it's just 30 feet. That's the objective reality, 30 feet. 30 feet's the long way for a bug. Just like 15 years is a long life for a dog. Or just like 2,000 years is a long span of time for us. Perspective makes a difference. And when it comes to our running with endurance, for us to endure, <laughs> for us to not grow weary or faint-hearted, for us to not drop, as some runners do, we need the perspective that comes from thinking carefully about Jesus. And in particular, we, we need that perspective by remembering what Jesus suffered. This is... Verse 4, this is the second point. Get perspective by remembering what Jesus suffered. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Why does the writer say this? It seems kind of jolting to me, right? Because he's telling us to consider Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's like, and you've not suffered as badly as Jesus did. <laughs> and when I read this, I think, okay, man, easy, you know? Like, wh where does that come from? Because then he starts talking about God's discipline. And it, 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 if we're honest, it seems like the intensity of this, of this passage just gets cranked up in verse 4. And it, 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 it's not... It's not overtly natural to the flow of the text, at least not the first reading. 
Well, look at this. We, we, go from, we go from this in verses 1 and 2, this first person plural encouragement. Let us, let us, let us. And then like all of a sudden in verse 4, there's this, this second person semi-rebuke. You, you, you. And it's like, what? Why does he do this? What, what's going on here? Tension there. Why does he say this? Here's what I think it is. <laughs> Remember, the writer is speaking to real Christians in the early church who were being tempted to forsake Jesus. There, there were some here who were, who were dropping from the race. There were runners who were dropping. And there were others who were on the verge of dropping. And do you know what they were saying? They were saying, all this run is making my side hurt. All this running's taking too long. I've got blisters on my feet. I'm exhausted from all this laying aside these weights. I am, I am so tired of this struggle against sin. In other words, they were going to stop running because it felt like to them the running was too hard. See that? That makes sense? Why has it got to be so difficult? That's what they're asking. Why has it got to be so hard? You know that question. We know that question. We've asked that question before. Haven't we? Why does the Christian life have to be so difficult? Why is God's call on my life so uncomfortable? How am I supposed to run with endurance when the running is just so hard? Well, the writer of Hebrews is anticipating that question. And so that's what he starts to answer here in verse 4. And basically the way to categorize verses 4 to 11 is that this is a defense for why the Christian life is so difficult. This is an explanation. And right away in verse 4, once you see, the writer acknowledges that yes, it's hard. He says here, in your struggle against sin, and that word for struggle is another word that's only used one time in the entire New Testament. It's the Greek word, listen to this, antagonizomai. And that word means exactly what our English word antagonism means. Active hostility. It means you're, we're not friends with sin. We hate sin. We're fighting against sin. We're resisting sin. That's the other word used here. See that word verse 4? Resisting. That word means that we are actively, constantly opposing something, resisting it. These are heavy words. The antagonismi is real. The struggle is real. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes, in fact, it's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming, and we get fed up with it. 
And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us in verse 4, he's saying, yeah, okay, look, I get the running's hard. <laughs> I get it's hard. Enduring in faith is hard. But don't get too far down that road of thinking, okay? Get some perspective here. Remember that what Jesus went through is worse than what you're going through. He suffered worse. Jesus suffered worse than you. Do y'all see how he's saying that in verse 4? Look at verse 4 again. Do y'all see how he's saying that? He's saying, look at that. First of all, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You've not suffered the way Jesus did. Jesus sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he agonized about the suffering of the cross. He was scourged repeatedly by Roman soldiers with a whip that shredded his skin and left him unrecognizable. Large thorns were beaten into his head. Nails, nails were hammered through his hands and feet. There was a lot of blood. That's why we think about the blood. There was a lot of blood. Any of you guys ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Let me see some hands just to make sure. Y'all know what I'm talking about. There's a sequel coming out, I heard. Um, it's called Resurrection. True story. It's coming out. I read about it. Uh, heck yeah, there's a sequel. <laughs> there's a real one, though. A real movie coming out. But, uh you know, there's that scene of Jesus' crucifixion. I went back and watched it this week. And look, man, I know it's a movie, right? But, man, it's, suppo it's, it's supposed to be a pretty historically accurate depiction of, of what a crucifixion was like. It's hard to watch. Because it reminds us that they really nailed him to a cross. Like, it was a, it was a nail, man. It was a real nail. And they nailed it through his hands. And then they hoisted him up on that cross and it, it drops down in the ground. And you just, ah. And there's just blood everywhere. Blood everywhere. He's got blood all over him. He doesn't even look like a man. Just blood. And the writer of Hebrews would say, Look, I know the running's hard, but you haven't done that. You haven't done that. Get perspective by remembering what Jesus suffered. Basically, compare your suffering to Jesus and know that he had it worse. And look, this, this gets a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because... I didn't think that we're supposed to compare suffering. Is it okay to think that someone else's suffering is worse than another's? Shouldn't we all just think that everyone has equal suffering? Of course not. Okay. No. In general, we should be very cautious when it comes to this idea of comparing suffering. But that is what the writer is telling us to do here. And so how should we think about this?
We need biblical wisdom here. What is the right position when it comes to comparing suffering? How should we think about it? Here it goes. Okay, track, track, track with me, okay? We should not compare suffering if the result is to suggest that our suffering is worse than someone else's. But we may compare suffering if it reminds us that someone else's suffering is worse than ours because that's perspective. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a negative, a negative example of this. Okay, this is uh, an experience that I had in college. My, uh, my sophomore year of college, my, my baby cousin passed away at five months old. And she spent most of her life at Duke Children's Hospital in the intensive care unit. And my uncle and aunt, who are amazingly godly people, I want to honor them, godly couple. They were, they were there every day by her side. And, um, you know, a lot of my family members every day would go and they would visit. They were just in and out all the time visiting them and visiting my, my baby cousin. And I got to go there several times. And you go there, you know, you spend a lot of time in a waiting room, a family room, right? That's, you guys get that. You imagine when you, when you go to a place like that and you're in a family room, you tend to be surrounded by other families who also have a sick child. Well, toward the end of my cousin's life, there was an 18-year-old who was brought into that ICU because he had suffered a traumatic brain injury. It's very sad. And it was later communicated to his parents that he would not survive that injury which is just horrible, horrible. And in this room of heaviness, one of the grieving parents of this 18-year-old said to my family, who were in their own grief, they said that my cousin was only a few months old, but they had invested 18 years in their son. So no doubt that person was speaking from a place of pain, right? And we always want to be gracious to people when they are speaking from pain. And at the same time, what that person said was foolish and sick, sick. Don't do that. Don't compare suffering like that. Never dismiss the pain of others by thinking that your pain is worse. Can we just agree not ever to do that? We agree with that, right? Never do that. We don't do comparisons like that. But... There are other times when it may serve you to remember that your suffering is not as bad as others.
We still need to have caution here. We still have to be careful. But this kind of comparison, this kind of remembering, it can give perspective, which is what we need. Because if we're honest, a lot of times we can just get so messed up, so messed up over relatively small things. I can't find my favorite sweatshirt. Someone took my device and did not put it back. It's rainy and cold today. I just feel low. It just sucks. Everything looks just so cloudy and rainy. Ugh. My car got broken into last night. Again. Forgot to lock my doors. My trash can cabinet thing. My trash can cabinet thing. It's broken. And I can't. It's hard to fix. I'm running late for my appointment. My, today is going to be the worst day of my life. Because everything's going wrong. You know, a few weeks ago, Israeli babies were beheaded. So just stop. Stop it. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that it's not frustrating when people break into your car and they take your stuff. Huh? I'm not saying you can't be irritated when you lose something. It does not mean that you ignore your sickness or your stress or your crisis or your loss. Don't do that. You must pray and grieve and weep. You must do all of that and, and give perspective. There are other people and there are saints who have suffered unimaginable things. And God brought them through it. Remember that. And no, it's always the case with Jesus, right? He experienced the worst, most ultimate suffering, and he endured the suffering. He endured it. God brought him through it. So verse 4 wants us to remember that. Verse 4 wants us to remember that. Give perspective by remembering that. Here's the third point. This is, this is the third point. Get perspective by remembering God's fatherly discipline. This is verses 5 to 11. Look at verse 5. Remember that the writer here, he's giving, he's, what he's doing, he's giving a defense for why the Christian life is so difficult. He's speaking to those who are running and who are about to drop because the running is hard. And he says in verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And in the ESV, it's translated like a question, a rhetorical question. In some other English translations, it's put as a statement. It's an indictment. This is the King James, the New American Standard. It translates it this way. You have forgotten. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. You forgot this, which means we need perspective. They forgot something. They have to be reminded about something. So the writer does this. He quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And that word weary there is the same word used in verse 3. When he talks about don't be weary when the running gets hard. Same word for weary. Verse 6. For the Lord disciplines. 
In verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. So he's saying that, this is what he's saying, the one way to make sense for why things can feel so difficult in the Christian life is because of the fatherly discipline of God. He, he's giving a reason for the difficulty. God disciplines those he loves. He chastises everyone he accepts as his child. That's Proverbs 3.12 in verses 5 and 6. And now in verse 7, the writer is going to expound what this means. And he tells us that God's discipline does three things. God's discipline does three things. And, and, and this is what we're going to, this is the rest of the sermon, okay? And I'll, 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 I'll tell you, I think this is the most important thing I have to say. It's the most important thing in the passage. So for the youngest, youngest people in this room and for the oldest people in this room and for everyone in between, this is especially for you, okay? I'm going to start doing that. I, it, you get what I'm saying, right? Everybody listen. That's what I'm saying. Look at this. So we're going to do an ABC, okay? ABC here. A is this. God's discipline affirms we are his children. Verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 is just a, it's a great summary statement of how to apply Proverbs 3, 12 to our suffering. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If you, if you highlight, highlight that. Notice that word, that, that word endure again in verse 7. So it's run with endurance, verse 1. Jesus endured the cross, verse 2. Jesus endured hostility from sinners, verse 3. Now, verse 7, we are to endure whatever it is we have to endure as God's discipline. And this is really important right here because this gets to the question. What exactly is God's discipline? How do we know when something is God's discipline or not? Is God's discipline... A response to my sin? How, how do we think about this? Well, this passage doesn't specify that God's discipline is one thing and not another. And this passage does not say that God's discipline is because of our sin. Now, discipline could be that. Discipline could be corrective discipline in that way. Sometimes... God disciplines us because of sin. But it's not always like that. That's not normative. And here, here's a danger to beware with that kind of thinking. If you think that discipline is only God's response to your sin, then you're going to think that things are only hard for you because you've done something wrong. That's not what this is. That's not what's happening here. The word for discipline here is much more expansive than that. It means 
cultivation and guidance. It's, it's, it's about how you're shaped, how you're formed. Verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Endure what? Endure what? Well, endure whatever requires endurance. Whatever is hard. God's discipline is behind whatever we have to endure. So verse 7 then leads us to understand that everything that is difficult in our lives, if we are God's children, it is God's discipline of us. Whatever makes the running hard, whether it's from the outside or the inside, natural disaster and emotional depression, calamity and cancer, hurricanes and headaches, persecution and sickness, broken relationships, disappointment, torn Achilles heels. Right? I prayed for Kirk this past week. That's hard. Look, whether it's circumstantial and indirect, accidental, a fluke, seemingly, or if someone has premeditated an attack on you for your harm, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God, God is treating you as sons. Look at that second part of verse 7. For for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And I like the way the New Living Translation translates this. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? Verse 8. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. How about that for perspective, right? Because we're over here scratching our heads about why it's so hard. And the writer of Hebrews says that if it's never hard, it's because you're not really his children. Do do you see how this perspective changes everything? The people who should be scratching their heads are not the people suffering. The people who should be scratching their heads are the people who have not suffered. Brothers and sisters, the hard thing that you're going through, the hard thing that you will go through, as God's discipline for you, it means that God is saying to you in the hard thing, I'm your Abba. You are my child. God's discipline affirms, affirms that we are his children. That was A, here's B. God's discipline earns our respect, verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Here the writer makes a comparison between our earthly fathers and God as our heavenly Father. And he's working from the general assumption 
that children respect their fathers. And of course, we know this is a command in the Bible, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. In the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents in the Lord, which includes fathers, for this is right. So the Bible is clear. The Bible commands that children should respect their fathers. But notice that the writer doesn't cite any of these commands here in verse 9. He just talks about this like it's a natural expectation. It's natural that children respect their fathers. Of course. That's normal. Of course. It's right. And apparently it was enough of a natural expectation in the ancient world that the writer of Hebrews can just draw from that expectation and make a point. And that's what I'm say. There are still vestiges of that expectation in our world today. Because I think this is just part of reality. We all know, we all know this. Deep down, we know that children should respect their fathers. Proverbs 17.6 gives us an amazing like, universal truth about fathers. Proverbs 17, 6 says, the glory of children is their fathers. Which is why no matter how much your earthly father may have failed you, you still hold on to things that make you proud of him. We are wired to respect our fathers. We, we want to respect our father so bad. Dads, don't make it hard for your kids to respect you. We want to respect our earthly fathers. And that's true of earthly fathers with all of their imperfections. So then how should we think of our heavenly father? Our heavenly father, who is always faithful, always patient, always kind, always generous, always present, always good. Well, obviously, he deserves our total respect, unquestioned respect, complete trust. That's verse 9. That's, that's B. Here's, here's the last thing, C. This is the final thing I want to say. I want you to see here about God's discipline in verses 10 to 11. And I, I'm going a little long. I'm sorry. Just hang with me here, okay? This is verses 10 and 11. God's discipline accomplishes a purpose. In verse 10, the writer continues the comparison to our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Which means earthly fathers are not infallible. Even the best of dads who, who do the best they can, they are doing what seems right to them. They, dads, we, I feel, I feel this as a dad. We do what we suppose to be best. We're doing what we think is best. But we don't have the perfect knowledge of all things with infinite, unsearchable wisdom that is joined together with absolute, irresistible power and sovereignty over all that happens. Earthly fathers don't have that. Earthly fathers can't do that. But church, you have a father who can. Verse 10, you have a heavenly father who disciplines us for our good. Not across your fingers, hope this will work out kind of good. Not a best of intentions kind of good. This is a guaranteed effectual good. That is, 
the purpose, the purpose of God's discipline is that we share in his holiness. God disciplines us for the purpose of our being conformed into the image of Jesus. And notice that this purpose is part of the discipline. It's not an afterthought. We do not live in a world of chance and random hardship. It's not that we just live always at the mercy of fate or Satan. And it's only after things go horrible that God is then allowed to come in and do the best he can to repair stuff. No. That is not how it works. That is not reality. Look what it says here in the text. God is treating you as children. He disciplines us. So, so whether it is a circumstance that he orchestrates or, or a sin that he allows, God is sovereign over the worst. The worst. He's sovereign over it. And he will, through it, accomplish his good purpose. And yes, in the moment, it seems painful rather than pleasant. God, it hurts. Father, it hurts. Let, let the cup pass from me. Let it pass. I don't want it. It hurts. It's painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. It is for our everlasting good, all of it. Oh, to have that perspective. And to remember now that one day we will have that perspective, maybe not in this life. But certainly in the new creation, we will be able to sit back and look at all of it and see how God was at work in it for our good. And we will worship him for it. There's this really old quotation from Jonathan Edwards all about this. And I ran across this quote, oh goodness, a few years ago. And it just, it just captured me. And so I've, I've written it down in my prayer notebook, and I read, I read this quote every day. Okay? It's a quote from Edwards. It's all about sovereignty and suffering and our eternal good. This is what Edwards says. He says that every atom in the universe is managed by Christ so as to be most to the advantage of the Christian. Every particle of the air and every ray of the sun so that he in the other world, talking about us, us, we in the new creation, we shall be able to sit back, see it all, and enjoy all this vast inheritance with surprising, amazing joy. Oh, for that perspective. How do you run when the running is hard? You remember that. 
you get that perspective. Church, keep running, okay? Keep running. Keep running. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. And when we make it, it will all have been worth it. And more than worth it. Surprising, amazing joy. And that's what brings us to the table. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? Apart from Christ, you will die in your sins and be separated from God forever. Stop resisting Jesus. Trust him right now. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And for those of you who are here who have trusted him, isn't he everything to us? He's everything. And we come to this table this morning to remember that. We come to this table to, to eat the bread that represents his body broken for us, to drink the cup that represents his shed blood for us. And we remember that we are united to him by faith, that we will be with him forever. And we proclaim that hope until he comes. And so if you're a Christian this morning, we invite you to eat and drink with us. I'll serve the bread first. Just hold the bread. I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.